All right, you should be in your Bible or in your device at Isaiah 45. The topic this morning, God chose a pagan king to deliver Israel from captivity and return them to Jerusalem. The title of the message, Israel won't be a thing if it ain't got this king. <laughs> Father, what a joy it is to be here this morning with brothers and sisters in Christ. We've lifted up our voices in praise, Lord. You've received it, we know, because uh, you love us. You love us like a father loves his children, Lord, and it doesn't matter our talent, Lord. It's the fact that we're doing it before you. Now, Lord, as we turn to your word in Isaiah, Lord, so much is revealed, more than we could ever know in one session, Lord, one time. So reveal what is necessary to each heart individually and to all of us corporately. We want to be on the proverbial same page as a church, and in our lives, we want to be following your plan. Speak to us, Lord, between the soul and the spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. amen. Donald Trump, also known as Cyrus. Let me explain. President Trump moved the U.S. Embassy to is in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and was hailed as a modern-day King Cyrus. Trump wasn't the first to become associated with the ancient Persian ruler on account of aiding Israel. The Balfour Declaration in 1917 expressed the British government's support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people. It led to comparisons between Lord Balfour and Cyrus. President Harry Truman's decision to recognize the state of Israel about 15 minutes after it declared independence in 1948 likened him to King Cyrus. At King Cyrus, the real one, united the empires of Media and Persia. He conquered Babylon just as Israel's 70-year captivity was ending and encouraged them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. He even paid for most of it. The shock with Cyrus is that he is being named by Isaiah over 150 years before he was king actually before he was even born. The anointing of Cyrus 2,700 years ago by God was a crucial moment in redemptive history for everyone. It reestablished Israel in their land, which was necessary for the Messiah to come and fulfill many Bible prophecies uh, and, and for the temple to be intact. And so their city was ruined, their temple was destroyed, if you're the devil, you're a hot diggity dog. You know, it's, there's no, no coming back from this. And then all of a sudden, this pagan king, Cyrus, is sending them back and paying for their temple so that when Jesus comes, all is ready for him. Isaiah has opened our eyes before to God's dealings with nations. And it's given us an opportunity to consider our own nation. We'll continue that, of course, today. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your nation needs ears to hear. And number two, your nation needs knees to bow. Let's take a look at our ears to hear. So here we're introduced to Cyrus, or are we? Well, let me show you what I mean. Verse one, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. The Lord talks to Cyrus, and so he's not so much introducing him to Israel as he is introducing himself 
to Cyrus. It's kind of an interesting double introduction, right? It's like Israel's meeting Cyrus in the sense that they're being told who he is and when he's going to come and what he's going to do. But the Lord is really talking to him about how great the Lord is and that he's only going to do it because of the power of our God. It might seem a small point, but I think it's always good to remind ourselves that the subject of the Bible is Jesus. Make it a habit to look for him while being careful not to bend the scriptures to say something that they don't. Uh, and so you can, you can find the Lord in these passages, but you don't wanna come up with anything weird. And so, you know, thinking about, if you start thinking about that, you'll think, okay, well, he seems to be introducing Cyrus, but it's kind of in a weird way because he's talking mostly about himself, about his glory, about his power and such. And so uh, the idea that underscoring all this from the very beginning is that, yeah, Cyrus is going to be raised up. He's going to be very powerful and all, but he's nothing without the Lord. And that's why later in the text, he kept saying, I am the Lord. I'm the Lord. And, and I'm doing this for you. And so keep that in mind. Cyrus may have been anointed with oil, as was the manner with kings. God's anointing means Cyrus was chosen to serve the Lord. If you're a Christian, you've been chosen to serve Jesus. We all go making disciples of all men. That's a great commission for every Christian. And that means that, you know, you don't have to go to Africa or the Philippines or some place where you might not want to go. It seems like a lot of people go to these really you know, torn areas like the Caribbean and Hawaii and, you know, places like the Polynesian Islands, I'm sure, need more missionaries and also. Uh, but anyway, uh, you, you, it doesn't mean you have to go anywhere. It's, it's as you're going through life, you're letting people know you're a Christian and you're trying to minister for the Lord and be used of the Lord. Then in the fellowship of believers, there's a listing of one another's that you can perform. There are at least 30 of them, and that's not an exhaustive list. A few of those encouragements would be love one another, honor one another, build up one another, and bear one another's burdens and forgive one another. And so those are things all of us can do. They don't require any special gifting, just the indwelling Holy Spirit, so that we look at others and, we say, and we're thinking, hey, if you're carrying a burden, can I help you carry that? Um, I forgive you, do you, you know, maybe, uh, or will you forgive me, however that goes. And so we're always, in a sense, working in this one another capacity to say, hey, you know, we, we want to walk with the Lord together, and so how can we better do that? And beyond that, the New Testament reveals certain supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit that are given to individuals as he sees fit. And so he looks at you, and he, he doesn't look at you and say, you're really good at this, and so I'm going to, you know, that's your gift. Most of the time, the Holy Spirit looks at you and says, you're really good at this, so this has to be your gift. Otherwise, people will just think it's you and not God. And so he, he gifts you in ways that are not according to your natural ability. And gifting is super important. In the New Testament church at uh, Corinth, they had this guy, great teacher, Apollos. And Apollos was a... Uh, uh, well, I don't want to use anybody's name because then you'll think I'm denigrating them. But anyway, so he was a great preacher. But Aquila and Priscilla, this Christian couple that ministered for the Lord, they had to take him aside and say, you know, you're, you seem like a great orator, but you're missing something. You're lacking the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And comparing to Paul, Paul was a short, gnarly-looking guy is the only thing I can say using a surfer term. 
eyes were all bad, you know, and, and just, you know, he, he said of himself he wasn't a good orator. People looked at him and they thought, he was the kind of guy who'd say, that's, that's Paul. But when he spoke, people listened. And, and the Holy Spirit did a, a work in, in their lives and in their hearts. And so God, God does that. He, he says, this, this guy, <laughs> no one will believe it's, it's him. It, it has to be me. And so God is trying to do that in this gifting. And a, another thing, um, you know, Cyrus, he was known before he was born by God. You and I are known before we were born, right? Before we are born, the Lord knows us. And he knows everything about us. And he already has our plan, a plan for our lives that we're supposed to discover after we become Christians. And so we're in this text in great ways too. Now the Lord, uh, the Lord here held Cyrus's right hand. In ceremonies, the ruler of Babylon took the hand of their god, Bel. Here the Lord seized Cyrus by the hand. Whose hand would you rather be holding, especially in turbulent times? Right? I mean, you're the, head, you're the head of this big empire and stuff. You've got problems, you know, within and without. I think I'll go hold Bell's hand, idol of wood and stone. Can you help me, Bell? Bell, how come you're not answering? Bell, has anybody seen Bell? No, God is holding his hand. He says, I'm going to strengthen you. These are the things I'm going to do with you and through you, and you're going to minister to my people. Isaiah had a fascination with the comfort of holding the Lord's hand. In chapter 41, verse 10, he had said, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Chapter 43, verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. Isaiah 49, 16, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, the remainder of verse 1 is a prediction of Cyrus' victory over Babylon, continued in verse 2, which reads, I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. Nothing would stop the advance and the victories that would be surprisingly easy for Cyrus. The Greek historian Herodotus reported that there were 100 brass gates in the walls surrounding Babylon. Didn't matter because Cyrus wasn't going to attack by the gates. He, uh, historians say that he dry, uh, diverted the Euphrates River that ran under the gates, and they uh, walked in. And if you figure how easy it was, it's because in Daniel we read that they were having a drunken party at the time. Uh, and so my advice to you, if you're worried about the siege outside, don't have a drunken party uh, inside, and you'll be, you'll be fine. Actually, don't have a drunken party anytime. How's that? Isaiah 45, verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord who call you by name, am the God of Israel. As if calling him by name over a century before he came to power was not enough, the Lord said, I'm going to prove myself to you because as you conquer these different lands and cities and all, you're going to find their secret treasures. So what is he talking about? Well, for example, as Babylon was coming to destroy uh, Israel in that third siege of Jerusalem, if it's a siege, you, you know when you're going down. I mean, you know, it's like, hey, tomorrow we have to open the gate. We're starting to cannibalize each other. It's over. And so Jeremiah, in this case, took advantage of that waiting time. And the story goes that he hid the Ark of the Covenant. He took the Ark out of the temple and he hid it somewhere 
We don't know where it is. The Ethiopians say they have it, but they won't let anybody see it. Um, Indiana Jones thought he had it, you know, but he didn't. And, and so uh, that's the idea. The, these cultures, you know, you, hey, would you go and say, hey, I want that box thing that they talk about that has power. I want, what is it, the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah. And so God says, hey, all of these little artifacts and stuff, I'm going to let you find them. I'm going to tell you where they are. And so he, you know, I, he must have had a lot of interesting talks with Cyrus is all I can say. The Lord says, I am the God of Israel, again, introducing himself. And throughout this, it's, it's really, you hear the Lord saying, I'm the God, I'm your guy, I'm the one. You don't need these, and, and I, I can use even pagan kings. You think you're having trouble at work? You think it's your boss, or you're the boss and you think it's a particular employee? God can move the hearts of kings. If he can do that, he can handle the situation you're in. And so maybe it isn't the other person. 99.99999 infinity percent of the time, it's not the other person. It's you, all right? Because God could do whatever he wants with the other person. You could be working for Cyrus, uh, you know, and that'd be great. But if you're not, then it's, it's you. Uh, verse four, Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. They were and continue to be God's elect, meaning they were chosen to serve him. God was setting things up for the sake of his people. His providence is able to see that his will on earth be done so that his kingdom come. As I've already said, City in ruins, temple in ruins, God is like, well, how are we going to solve this one? And he, of course, knows ahead of time because he's, history is his story. Uh, but we don't know, and we need to trust that in this bleakest of moments, right? I mean, even the Jews knew the Messiah was, they thought he could come at any time. Was he really going to come to a, a dilapidated temple or no temple? I'm, you know, they needed these things to happen, and God did them in the weirdest way possible. Verse five, I'm the Lord, there's no other. There's no God besides me. I'll gird you, through, though you've not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there's no other. Uh, the word for God in verse five is Elohim. We've noted in other studies that this is not a name of God. Uh, sometimes it's taught that way. I've taught it that way for years, that it's a name of God. But it turns out Elohim is not a name for God. It is a classification of beings that live in what we call the unseen realm. Any being like God or angels that lives in the unseen spiritual realm is an Elohim. Uh, God is an Elohim, but no Elohim is God. In other words, he lives there with them in that special realm. But he, as he says here, I'm God, I'm the one, I'm omnipotent, I'm the one. He's totally different than any other being. That'll become important. Well, it's important all the time. It'll become important in our text here in just a minute. I form the light, verse 7, and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do these things. Now, this is one of those verses that, admit it, troubles us deeply. It, you know, when people have questions, we hope it's not from this verse. What do you mean he creates calamity? Calvinists the world over feel a sudden thrill as they describe calamity Jesus to people, you know? Yeah, he does. He brings evil, and it's all him. 
If anything happens in the universe that, that he doesn't cause, then the whole universe would explode. It'd be like the hadron col the collider that they built over there, you know? So, uh, but it, don't, I don't get excited about calamity. I don't know about you. So here's the deal. The Persians were what we call dualists. A dualist is someone who believes that good and evil are independent and more or less equal warring forces. Light is good. Darkness is bad. They, they fight each other. Peace is good. Calamity is bad. In modern times, dualism is called George Lucasism <laughs> because that's the, that's the closest thing to it. It's a, a Star Wars, you know, force mentality that there's evil and that there's good. You could go either way. You have a little bit of both, you know, that kind of thing. And it's always in jeopardy. Is it going to be Palpatine or is it going to be Luke? You know, who's going to really win this thing? Uh, that's nonsense. There is no dualism. God and the devil are in no way equal. God's plan is never in jeopardy. He's over all things, in charge of everything. He interjects himself to protect the work of redeeming you and his creation along with you. That's all well and good, Pastor Gene, but it still says he creates calamity. Well, the Lord has been talking about nations, not individuals. He determines whether a nation enjoys peace or calamity. Medo-Persia in this period of time would know peace because they would follow the Lord, not as believers even necessarily. There's no record that Cyrus ever gotten saved like Nebuchadnezzar did. But because they obeyed the Lord and did what the Lord wanted them to do, God had them know peace. Babylon would suffer calamity. Why? Because he... They, mis they mistreated God's people, went beyond what God wanted them to do, and were evil in the sense that Nebuchadnezzar walked around his city and said, I did this. Look at what I have done. And God said, uh, no. How about you be out in your garden for the next seven years acting like a bird? <laughs> and then you can write this tract about how great I am. And so that's what happens. Peace or calamity depend on choices the choices that these nations made, or their leaders, rather. And so verse 8, rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Rain from the heavens and the earth. The earth opening up in springs reminds you of what? Well, the flood, yeah, the global flood, because that's what happened. And so why, Isaiah, he looking at the future, he says, righteousness, being right with God and everything, you know, going the right way, justice and mercy and all of this, it's going to be so prevalent in the earth that it'll be like the flood. It, you, you know, you'll be swimming in it, is like we, we like to say about stuff. No, black, no gray, all black and white, everything happening just the way the Lord wants it to in the millennial kingdom to a certain extent and then in eternity for sure. Woe to him who strives with his maker, let that potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? I like that. I've been cruising on that for a while, just the, the image of a, a potter with no hands, just kind of, you know, and just knocking the clay. You want to put your clay up up here for you? It'd be weird, right? Do any of you work on pots, your pottery's wheel? Yeah, how would it be without hands? Difficult. So this is another one of those areas where, uh, you know, people get excited because they say, well, see, 
you know, God is the potter, you're the clay, and uh, what right do you have to talk to him? And there's a certain amount of this here. We certainly shouldn't challenge God. But he talks to us tenderly here as children, reminding us that we are his children. And so uh, this does not prove God's sovereignty and man's free will are incompatible because the illustration actually comes from the prophet Jeremiah. When he used it, he too was talking about nations, not individuals, and he states that God reacts to a nation's decision to either obey him or disobey him. And so the illustration actually proves the opposite of what they think. It proves that God gives us free will. I'll read part of it at the end of our message where he says, hey, if you follow me, great, I'll, I'll take care of you, I, I will bless you. If you decide not to obey me, I have to curse you in the sense of bringing calamity upon you. And this is why nations rise and fall, because they turn away from God and they do their own thing, and God says, I can't bless you for that. And, and so they, there is this succession of nations. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, his maker, ask me things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, you command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. Now, as I joked about, the Jews accused the Lord of being a potter with no hands. It was because they didn't like what he was making them. They said, hey, you're up, you're like, and this is, a, what an insult. You're the master potter and you don't have hands because you're sending us into the Babylonian captivity. They didn't like it. But God said, hey, this is the best thing for you. I've given you every opportunity to repent. I'm bringing the Messiah and the Savior of the world into the world of men, and you can't stop it. And you're going to if I don't take you to Babylon and you get straight on this idolatry stuff. Verse 13, rather, I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct his ways. He shall build my city, that is Cyrus, and let my exiles go free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. In a bizarre, unexpected move, God used this pagan king to deliver his people and forward his redemption agenda. No doubt someone took the scroll of Isaiah and read it to Cyrus. He had ears to hear right? I mean, what if you're sitting there, you're Cyrus, and you're the, you know, the king of the Medo-Persian empire, and, and you, you have an audience with someone from Israel, and they say, hey, we'd like to read to you this hundred-year-old scroll. And I bet they did it with a real dramatic, you know, hey, get this. And yet, who? Cyrus? Me? Are you talking about me? Or Cyrus the virus from Con Air? Oh, you're talking about me? I'm just trying to flush you out. But uh, anyway... Would to God our leaders would hear the Bible and the Lord calling us to national repentance. Amen. Your nation needs knees that bow. Revival, according to Ian Murray, is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit brought about by the intercession of Christ, resulting in a new degree of life in the churches and a widespread movement of grace among the unconverted. I would submit that we put too little emphasis on the outpouring of grace on believers we are prone to wander. We leave our first love and don't even realize it. We ought to quit looking around for revival and look within. Within our individual bodies as the temple of God and within the church collectively as the temple of God because both of those are true at the same time. And so we have a tendency to think, oh, revival happens in that tent 
where a bunch of non-believers get together and get saved. No, judgment like that begins in the house of God. The church gets revived, Christians get revived, and unbelievers are drawn in and become Christians. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and of the soybeans, uh, oh, excuse me, the Sabaeans, men of stature shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come in chains and they shall bow to you saying, uh, surely, uh, excuse me, bow down to you. They will make supplication to you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, there is no other God. I say this with reverence. Isaiah is all over the place time-wise. He'll talk about the past, the present, the near future, and the far future, sometimes in the same verse. Here in verse 14, it's clear he is describing the far future. If nations are walking behind Israel, then they are the world's prominent nation. The observation that some Gentile nations will be in chains, obviously looking forward to a time Israel will have that kind of authority to judge nations. Those things tell you Isaiah is describing the kingdom of God on earth in the future, the millennium, the millennial kingdom that lasts a thousand years. Verse 15, truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. In what sense is God hiding? Albert Barnes writes, the idea is that hides your counsel and your plans. The idea is that the ways of God seem to be dark until the distant event discloses his purpose that a long series of mysterious events seems to succeed each other, trying to the faith of his people and where the reason of his doings cannot be seen. And so the idea is that God hasn't revealed the entire plan. And, and we sometimes talk about that as a progressive revelation. The, the revelation that God makes in Genesis chapter three, where he promises the seed is coming to defeat the serpent and to make all things right, as you're scratching your head, you realize you don't have enough information to really understand that, but God gives it progressively through the history of his dealings with the human race, and especially when he takes Abraham and says, now I'm going to make a new nation, and, and there's, there's things that you can't understand until you get to the next book or the next era or the next dispensation. And now we have a great advantage because we have the entire scripture that God wants us to have from Genesis to Revelation, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we have this perfect hindsight to see what God was talking about in Genesis 3, that he was gonna become human in the incarnation and deal with Satan head on, die for the sins of the world and rise from the dead. And, and that, progress, that progressive revelation is what he's talking about here. Uh, verse 16, they shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go up in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For, the Lord says, uh, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare the things that are right. Woven throughout history is God's plan to save lost sinners by sending a savior through the nation of Israel. Typical of God, the plan seems foolhardy and always one episode away from total failure. 
Nevertheless, Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You can look at Israel's history time and time again when you think there's no way out of this situation. Everything's going to fall apart. God's going to be a promise breaker rather than a promise keeper. And then from the weirdest possible angle, God comes through. Or with a person you would never choose in a million years, God comes through, showing that he is God and that he knows what he's doing. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no other God beside me, just God, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. God challenges those who have chosen idols over him to produce one shred of evidence that their gods have actually ever done anything or predicted the future even. Verse 22, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. And he shall say, surely in the Lord I have come in righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. There's so much there. God again declaring, I am God, I am the Lord. Look to me, I am the exclusive way of salvation. If you, before I forget, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you cannot be saved Go to heaven, however you want to put it, go to heaven, live forever, uh, you know, inherit eternal life. You can't do that any other way except through Jesus Christ, who died for you and rose from the dead, that you might have eternal life. William MacDonald writes, this will find its fulfillment in the millennium. Then men will acknowledge the Lord Jesus as the only source of righteousness and strength. All his enemies will come to him in contrition, and Israel shall be justified and shall glory in him not in idols. So where is the United States in Bible prophecy? Well, we can look in two places. There's probably more, but these are two that we talk about. The first place we find the U.S. in prophecy would be Jeremiah 18. That's the Jeremiah I was alluding to earlier, the potter and the clay passage. And here's the words of God. He says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Think Nineveh, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah. He goes on and he says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I'm gonna relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. Think Babylon in our era here that we're talking about. God raised up Babylon to judge his people, to keep them captive for 70 years, to discipline them, but they went too far. They became arrogant, and God says, now I have to tear you down and build up another nation. And so nations, whether they're Christian or not, whether their leaders are Christians or not, ought to obey God. And when they obey God, the God of the Bible, God will bless them even though they're pagan unbelievers. 
And if they don't, even if they are believers, God will have to tear them down because he is over the nations. It'd be so great if our leaders were Christ-like, but I'd settle for Cyrus-like. Unbelievers who are like Cyrus, who saw the hand of God, the will of God. You know, in the, in the debate that goes on about the founding fathers in the United States and all, you know, were we founded as a Christian nation and is it Christian and all that kind of stuff. We'll fight that forever, but even if some of the guys weren't Christians, but they were Cyrus-like, they thought, hey, this is the best way to go. This is, the, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that there's a creator and that all men are created equal. And so let's go in this direction. It'll be the better government, right? And so that's the idea. Now, the other place in Scripture that we see the United States is a little bit less hopeful. Zechariah announced in chapter 12, verse 3, all nations of the earth will be gathered against Israel at some point in the end times. All means all. That means us. One commentator said, there is a gathering storm of worldwide anti-Semitism, and America's mind is slowly being poisoned by this malignant cancer. Now, I'm not predicting anything, only reporting. And we remember that Jesus is going to come imminently to remove his church from earth in the pre-tribulation rapture. But when, uh, you know, when all nations are aligned against Israel, all means us too. Now, I'd like to think, obviously, that that's after the rapture because, like other nations of the world, the United States will be devastated after the rapture. God takes all Christians... Everybody who believes Jesus will be taken in the rapture. There's no partial rapture. There's no rapture of me because I'm so spiritual and not you because you're not. Uh, Actually, it'd be just the opposite. But if you're a Christian, if you confess Christ, it's not a work. It's just you're a Christian and you go in the rapture. How many millions or tens of millions of people will be removed from the United States? How many of them in government? How many in the military? How many in crucial areas of living? where the United States would be actually reduced to almost nothing in terms of world power. And so we will join at that time, you know, with the other nations of the world against Israel because they're always the problem, aren't they? They're always the problem to the nations, or so we think. And so not a good place to be, but that's where we will be. Uh, But we will be in heaven. Jesus, to use the uh, old uh, hymn, has the whole world in his hands, amen? More importantly, we've learned here this morning that he is holding on to your hand. What a beautiful thing that is. As a father with his child, all the reasons that you would hold your child's hand, love, safety, protection, identification, I mean, just go down the line. And and so I wrote down here, tighten your grip in response. You know, we always wanna be careful we're not, preaching works or doing things to please God or anything like that. But this is a beautiful analogy. The Lord, has, he has your hand, and he, doesn't, he won't let go of it because he's got, why not tighten your grip? I don't know what that means for you. I, I think it's kind of a word of knowledge, to tell you the truth, for all of us to go home and say, Lord, what, what did Pastor Gene mean? How, what do you mean? I mean, in terms of how would I tighten my grip on your hand? Is there somewhere I've, I'm kind of, hey, Lord, I want to slip out for a while. Keep your hand there, I'm coming back. But, you know, and not necessarily in a huge sinful thing. You know, I always, I always take that as some horrible, you know, thing. I mean, where do I want to slip away sometime or not be holding God's hand? Where do I think I don't need to hold God's hand because I'm so strong now? I, you know, I can watch out for cars on my own. 
You know, I, I can cross freeways, uh, you know, in, in terms of that. And so just talk to the Lord, pray about it. Uh, it's a simple thing, but I think it can be a powerful uh, thing for you. Uh, the Lord's coming. This, time, this timing, I don't know how much bad stuff we're going to see. There's a lot of that coming too, and we're seeing it now. Uh, but um, have no fear, fear not. That's one, the thing that we're told all, most often in the Bible, fear not. And if you, if you don't know that he is the Lord after reading this, because he just keeps saying it over and over again, uh, he is and he's your Lord.